Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew 2. And uh, as you're turning there, consider this question. Have you ever noticed how the, the same piece of news, the same situation, can cause totally different reactions in different people? Same news, same situation, different responses. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a New England Patriots fan. Some of you, upon hearing that, are ready to change churches. Just give me grace. Don't judge me. Uh, this, this past Super Bowl, I was living in Alaska, where everyone there was a Seattle Seahawks fan. It was Seahawks versus Patriots, and, uh, and by the time the game was over, we had a victor. And I was the only happy man in the town of Petersburg. Everyone else, pretty angry. Kept a low profile for a few days after that. Same situation, same news, Patriots won, but my response was different from others. Or, a more recent example, just a few days ago, the new Star Wars movie came out. Some of you may be surprised to hear that I was pretty excited about that. But uh, I went out to lunch the other day with with Brian and and Ruth Rosberry. Uh, Brian shared my enthusiasm, but Ruth, not so much. I won't judge her. I'll give her grace. But again, same news, same situation, same, same circumstances, different responses from different people. Now, now, how you respond to some things is largely inconsequential. It's really not a big deal one way or another, uh, movies, sports, those sorts of things. But there are other situations, other events, other pieces of news where your response has massive consequences and ramifications for your life. And frankly, you need to get it right. You need to have the right response. In the uh, opening chapters of Matthew, uh, we're told about the most significant event ever to happen in history, which is the coming of the Christ child into the world, which we call Christmas. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're given several different responses to the very first Christmas. Same situation, same event, same piece of news, but very different reactions, and the ways that people responded to Christmas then is indicative of the way that people respond today. So, let's take a closer look, and if you would, would you please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And as we read, let's remember that this isn't legend. This isn't fable or fairy tale. What we are reading is an historic account accurately penned by the Apostle Matthew, who wrote this under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Word of God says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that 
I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then offering their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word. And Father, I pray that uh, you would do something that I cannot do, which is impact hearts and minds through the power of your word. And so I pray that you would do that this morning, that your word would not return void as, as you promised in the scriptures, uh, that lives may be changed and touched through what you will do here in the next few minutes uh, through this very familiar story. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's important to know when, when studying anything in the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew is writing his gospel with a Jewish audience in mind. And one of the most significant themes in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the long-awaited descendant of King David, who is predicted to one day come on the scene as an heir to the throne uh, and rule over Israel. So, for example, in the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see in the very beginning there, Matthew identifies Jesus as the Christ. Christ means Messiah, God's appointed king. And right after that, Matthew calls Jesus the son of David. Uh, David lived, lived a thousand years before Jesus, but, but Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic kingdom because he is a direct descendant of King David. Or in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel appears to Joseph, who is Jesus' earthly father. And the angel calls Joseph son of David. Even Joseph, even Jesus' adopted father is part of the royal family of David. Matthew takes great pains in emphasizing the royal messianic credentials of Jesus. And this thematic pattern of king and kingship continues into Matthew chapter 2. Now, in this period... Uh, there was a very high expectation and anticipation among the Jewish people for a Messiah to come. Israel had been kicked around by foreign powers for centuries, and at this time they are under the yoke of the Roman Empire. And by the time Jesus is born, the longing for a Davidic messianic deliverer is at a fever pitch. And when we reach Matthew chapter 2, we meet several characters. They're all different. Uh, But they are all responding to the same events. They're responding to Christmas, the coming of the Christ into the world. And I see at least three responses in our scripture. And the very first response I want us to take a look at is the response of King Herod. Herod is mentioned in the opening verse of Matthew chapter 2. You can look there at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Now, there's a few different Herods in the Bible. It's easy to get them mixed up. This one is known historically as Herod the Great. And Herod was great in many ways. He was very intelligent. He was very shrewd. He was a master politician, a master administrator, a master builder. 
He was behind the renovation of the temple in Jerusalem. Herod was great in many ways, and he was great in wickedness. And Herod was an agent of the Romans. He was a vassal king, and he was placed over Judea and Galilee. We call that Israel. He ruled over the Jewish people, though he himself was not Jewish. He was uh, an Edomite. But he circulated rumors around that he was Jewish to, to help him be accepted by the people. But as long as Herod remained loyal to Rome, as long as he did the job that the emperor wanted him to do, keeping the peace there in Judea, as long as he could do that, he could have his little kingdom. And Herod was very jealous for that kingdom murderously so. And he was very paranoid about losing his power. Now, knowing that, I think, gives a little extra weight to these opening verses in Matthew chapter 2. So, let's look at it again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose.'" And have come to worship him. Imagine the scene. You have these foreigners, these, these men from the east. Now, I hate to burst your, your bubble and rain on your nativity sets, but we don't know how many there were. We, we don't know if there were three or 30 or 300. But these men show up in Jerusalem. Makes sense. You're looking for the king of the Jews, you go to the capital of the Jews. And I imagine them walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And they're knocking on doors. They're entering into shops. Uh, they're in the marketplace. Everywhere they're going, they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a sign in the heavens. We, we know this special king has recently been born. And we've come all the way from the east to worship him. And eventually, word of these wise men and word of their question reaches the ears of Herod. Look at verse 3. The text says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled is an understatement. Actually, that word troubled in the Greek has the connotations of, of being stirred up, being upset, even panicky. He feels threatened by the news of the birth of this child. He is threatened by Christmas. And Herod isn't the only one who's troubled, who, who's anxious about the news. Look again at verse 3. Herod the king heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The whole city is stirred up and afraid. Now why? Because when the king isn't happy, no one is happy. Herod was obsessively jealous for his throne and for his power, and everyone knew it. If Herod suspected you as a rival to his throne, you're a dead man. That's the way it was. Once, he executed half of the Sanhedrin. He murdered 300 court officials. Herod murdered at least one of his ten wives and three of his sons. Herod, through scheming, politicking, and violence, he had earned himself the title King of the Jews, and there was no way he was going to allow anyone to take what was his. He was a bad guy. No one liked him, and everyone feared him. As a matter of fact, Herod gave an order that on the day of his death, many of the leading men of the city would be rounded up and executed, not because they had done anything wrong, not because they had committed crimes, but so that there would be no lack of mourning when he died. 
He knew no one would shed a tear over his departure. Well, I'm going to make sure people are crying when I'm dead. We're going to kill all these other people. So, kind of with that in mind, you can see why all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Herod knows he is hated, and Herod also knows that there are expectations for a Jewish Messiah to come on the scene. And the Jews expected the Messiah to come one day and totally take over. Herod's not Jewish. And Herod knows deep down that he's not the rightful king of the Jews, and so he feels threatened. That's why when you go down to verse 8, you see him scheming towards a solution to eliminate the threat. When he realizes this newborn king has been born in Bethlehem, he summons the wise men and says, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. Cue the evil music in the background when he says that. Herod doesn't want to know where the child is to worship him. Herod wants to know where the child is to kill him and end this talk about a newborn king of the Jews. This is seditious talk. This is treasonous kind of language. And that leads to the horrible story down in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Don't know how old this child is exactly. I know he's two years old and under based on my calculations, so we'll just kill everybody in that age group. Herod's response to Christmas is one of jealousy and fear and, uh, and ultimately hostility. With King Herod, we see hatred and hostility. Now, now, we read a story like this, and we tend to distance ourselves from Herod as much as possible. We're not first century Middle Eastern despots, and we're not looking to slaughter children, but we are more like Herod than we think we are. You think about this. What do you have with Herod? You have a man who hears the promises of God in the Scriptures about a Messiah, promises that are supposed to be good news. But to Herod, it's bad news, because when the news of the advent of the Christ child, the news about a coming king, the news about a ruler from of old comes to Herod, Herod sees that as a warning that his own little kingdom will come to an end. Herod doesn't know everything about what's coming down. But he knows enough to know that his kingdom cannot coexist with the kingdom to come. There can't be two kings. And Herod likes his kingdom. Herod likes his power. Herod likes his lifestyle. Herod doesn't want to be held accountable to a higher king, a higher authority. He wants to call the shots. He wants to do his own thing. I'm the king. Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. This is my life, and nobody is going to take it away from me. And he holds on to his life with white knuckles and clenched fists. You will have to pry my life from my cold, dead fingers before I give it up. Ladies and gentlemen... That is an exact description of the heart of every single one of us apart from the transforming power of Jesus Christ. In and of ourselves, we are all hostile to God's rule because we want to rule. We want to be kings. All sinners are little Herods, little despots, resisting God's call for us to repent and submit 
to his kingship. Don't stubbornly cling to your life like Herod did. Don't stiff arm Christ because he threatens your lifestyle. So what if you have 50 years of wealth and power and position and access to all the pleasures you crave? What is 50 or 60 years in light of eternity? Herod spent decades shoring up his life and garnering power and prestige and riches for what? To die of kidney disease at age 69? He who dies with the most toys still dies. Congratulations, you're in hell. Don't be a fool. Don't respond to Christmas as Herod did. Herod responded by seeking to eliminate Jesus Christ from his life no matter what. And that's exactly how the world responds to Jesus today. Jesus threatens our life. We seek to to do away with him. We seek to eliminate him. As long as we can keep him in the manger, as long as we don't let him grow up, we're fine with Christmas. Let's just keep him as a little baby because a little baby doesn't threaten my life. But Herod knew that if this baby were allowed to grow up, it would be over for him. It would be over for his kingdom. And so he tries to do away with him. Herod is trying to preserve his own life. But the irony of clinging to your own life is that in the end, it leads to death. That's why Jesus says later on, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus' kingship threatens our own. This is why people often get angry when you share the gospel with them. Because Jesus is a threat to their kingdom. And hatred and hostility come forward in response to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not submitting to God's kingship in your life, I pray that right now the Holy Spirit would move in your heart. He would change your mind about Jesus. And instead of stubbornly resisting him, you would instead gladly bow to him as the king of kings, and you will find life. The response of Herod to Christmas is hatred and hostility. But we meet another cast of characters, and that's the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now, you would think that if anyone would be excited about the coming of God's Messiah... If anyone would be thrilled to hear the news of the wise men, if anyone would be curious and really would want to follow through and check this out, it would be the religious people, right? I mean, they're religious. They're into God and stuff, right? So let's take a look at these guys. Look at verse uh, 4. Herod's getting wind of these rumors about the birth of Christ and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod is gathering the religious professionals together. These men would have been biblical scholars, very learned in the Old Testament Scriptures. They would have had large portions memorized. So Herod gathers them together for a little Bible study, find out where the Christ is to be born, and the scholars find an answer. Verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
So the Bible scholars point Herod to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's where that's a quote from. And Micah chapter 5, verse 2, specifically identifies Bethlehem as the place. Bethlehem was a small town about five or six miles from Jerusalem. It was the birthplace of King David. Now it's the birthplace of the son of David, the Christ. So the part these religious leaders play in the story is rather small. They come in, give the right answer, they leave. You may think, well, Deemer, what's the big deal? Why is that so bad? They don't do anything. That's the point. They don't do anything. Let me try to help you grasp the strangeness of this. Matthew's first century Jewish readers would have scratched their heads and would have just been puzzled by this. They were in touch with the times. They knew how fervently and how eagerly so many people were seeking the Messiah and and longing for his, His coming into the world. Imagine the scene. These are the religious leaders. They're summoned by the king. King says, religious leaders, scribes, These men have come from the east. They've seen a strange star in the heavens. It's guided them all the way here. They're saying that this star signals the coming of the Christ. So can you please tell me where the Christ is prophesied to be born? And they say, oh, that's an easy one, king. It's Bethlehem. It's just just outside the city. It's David's town. If you want to find the Christ, that's where you go. That's that's the town to watch. Is Is that all you need to know, king? Are we free to go now? Okay, okay, good. Hey, hey, did you see the game last night? No, that was, that was just awesome. Hey, hey, did you, did, you, did you see Star Wars? That was really cool. I, I'm, going, I'm going tonight. That was, just, that was excellent. They don't do anything. They go on with their lives, business as usual. And that's it. The response of the religious leaders is a stunning indifference and apathy. They don't go with the wise men to Bethlehem. They aren't diligently seeking and hoping for the Christ. They are comfortably disinterested. They don't go with the wise men because they're fools. And the folly of the religious leaders is another continuing theme throughout the book of Matthew. Charles Spurgeon, I love Spurgeon, I wish I could preach like him. Bet you wish that too. Too bad for you, I can't. But I'll do the next best thing and quote him. Spurgeon, reflecting on this passage, said of the religious leaders, he said that they knew where to find the text about the Savior's birth, and they could put their finger upon the spot in the map where he should be born, and yet they knew not the king. Neither cared to seek him out. May it never be my case to be a master of scriptural geography, prophecy, and theology, and yet to miss him of whom the scripture speaks. The religious leaders totally miss it. They are experts in the scripture. They're teachers of the law. And they totally miss Christmas because they don't care. You say, how do you know they don't care? Read the rest of Matthew and it'll be as plain as anything. Jesus exposes what is in the hearts of the religious establishment and what we see in Matthew chapter 2 is just the beginning. They are a people who say they love God. 
They memorize the scriptures. They attend worship services in the synagogues. They are a people who give lip service to the Lord, and yet they continually refuse Jesus over and over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 is just the beginning of a pattern of refusals and rejections of Jesus by the religious establishment. Later on, you can read that after Jesus grows up and begins his ministry, and he's standing right there in front of them, and they say this man is a charlatan. He's demon-possessed. He's not the Messiah. These religious leaders, they're like the people that the prophet Isaiah describes. The people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. You see, the ultimate litmus test of whether someone really loves God or not is how they respond to Jesus. Did you know that? That's the ultimate litmus test. People all over the world say they love God. People all over the world uh, of various religions say that they, they love God. Jesus clearly teaches that if you really honor God, you will honor Jesus. If you really love God, you will love Jesus. Because to see Jesus is to see God. If you're indifferent to Jesus, you're indifferent to God. If you don't worship Jesus, you're not worshiping God. Now, you may say, well, I'm not indifferent to Jesus. I agree with the Doobie Brothers. Jesus is just all right by me. But the question is not whether you think Jesus is just all right. The question is, do you worship Him? Do you diligently seek Him? Is he at the center of your world? Does your life revolve around him? That's how you treat the thing that you worship. The wise men go off to Bethlehem to worship Jesus, and the religious leaders apparently have better things to do. And the response of the religious leaders, friends, is terrifying. Because in them, we are shown how you can be outwardly very religious, very pious. You can read your Bible. You can be an expert in doctrine. You can be a Bible teacher. You can be a pastor. And yet in your heart there is no affection for Jesus and no worship of Him. In some ways the response of the religious leaders is more terrifying than the response of of King Herod. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is possible to know religion and religious activity and even do many things in the name of God, but totally miss Jesus. The response of Herod is hostility from the religious leaders we see indifference. How about the wise men? How do they respond to Jesus? Back up, go back up to verse 1, where we're introduced to them. And and in fact, Matthew introduces them with an exclamation. Look with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That word, behold, is very important. That word, is meant to draw our attention to something. Matthew is saying, look, see this? This is surprising, even shocking. 
Matthew, with that word, wants us to pay careful attention to the drama that is unfolding, and he expects the reader to be somewhat alarmed by what's going on. Why? Several reasons, I think. First of all, these men are not just any men. They are wise men, magoi in the Greek. And that word is associated with men who are interested in dreams and astrology, magic, And one of the shocking things about this is that astrology and magic are condemned in the Bible. Uh, These were pagan and ungodly practices. This sort of thing was a clear violation of the law of God and something no pious Jew was supposed to be involved in. To help you understand the strangeness of this, imagine your nativity set with three witches instead of wise men. Kind of changes things a little bit. Imagine singing, We Three Witches from Orientar. Are we going to sing that tonight when we go caroling? That, that's how, but that's how a Jew would have viewed these people. It's shocking. Now, Matthew's not endorsing astrology here. Instead, he's seeking to bring to our attention something that's incredibly noteworthy. So this star appears, gets the attention of these astrologers, and Somehow they associate this star with Israel and and with a Jewish king. We're we're not told exactly how they make this connection, but it is commonly speculated that the wise men of the east of Persia and Babylonia would have had access to the Hebrew Scriptures because hundreds of years before this time, the Jews were deported to that part of the world. The, The prophet Daniel would have been one of them. And if pagan astrologers are reading these Old Testament Scriptures, there is a verse that would have been of particular interest to them, and it's found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. That says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. There's mention of a star, there's mention of Israel, there's mention of a scepter, that's the symbol of a king. So it may well be that these wise men are engaged in their stargazings, and they see this strange cosmological sign, Matthew 2.2, it says, they, they, we saw his star when it rose. They see this strange sign. They connect it to Numbers 24.17, and off they go. Could have happened that way. We're not told for sure. But what we can be sure about is that these pagan wise men know that there is something special about this king. They feel drawn to go and seek him out, and that's strange. Because why would they care about a king that's not even over their own country? That's not even over their own people. Why seek out a foreign king? And yet, even though it's a Jewish king, they nevertheless feel drawn to this child. Not drawn not simply to see, but to worship. And Matthew exclaims, Behold, look at this. Because not only are these men pagan, but they are, they are also not Jewish. They are rank Gentiles. What we see in this story is a strange and shocking event. Gentile witches considered alien to God's people, traveling to the Jewish land, into the territory of Herod, eagerly seeking to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. That's why Matthew says, behold, look at this amazing, strange, and surprising twist in the story. This is amazing. Matthew has gone out of his way up to this point in the story to establish the fact that Jesus Christ is king of the Jews. 
that he's heir to a Jewish throne, a descendant of Jewish King David from the line of Abraham, father of the Jewish nation. And yet in this story, Matthew drops a megaton bomb on us and he shows how God is calling people outside of Israel. God is drawing to himself Gentiles, lawbreakers, sinners. Does it not seem scandalous to you that God would draw pagan witches to himself? And yet, so much of Jesus' life is associated with things that would scandalize people. While the Jewish religious elite rejected Jesus and even sought to kill him, who do we see being drawn to Jesus throughout his ministry? Prostitutes! Thieves! The socially unacceptable! A few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus received sharp criticism from the religious leaders because he dared to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus turns to them and says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christmas is for sinners. It's for sinners everywhere, inside and outside of Israel. The coming of the wise men points to the inclusive nature of the gospel. Is it not interesting that Matthew begins his book declaring that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and then right after that, Gentiles come to worship him? And is it not interesting that Matthew's book ends with a resurrected Jesus, proven to be the king of the Jews, being worshipped on a mountain by disciples whom he sends to all the nations, not just Israel, but to the ends of the earth, He sends them out to preach the gospel. He tells them to go into the world and make disciples. Matthew begins and ends his book with an emphasis on the fact that this king of the Jews is in truth king of the world. And the arrival of the wise men is signaling God's intentions for Jesus to be a global Messiah. He is the king of all peoples. He is calling and drawing sinners from all nations to come and adore him. To come and worship him. So we should not be shocked that pagan witches are being drawn to Bethlehem. Sinners of all stripes are being drawn to the Christ all the time. Apostle Paul writes to the ethnically diverse church in Corinth and says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to what Paul says right after that. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Christmas It's about God coming to earth to a people that has rebelled against his kingship, not to destroy the rebels, but to offer them amnesty and restoration. So that the worst of sinners, even you, even me, could be washed and sanctified and justified. So how do the wise men respond to Christmas? Look at Matthew 2.10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, just a side note here, they're in a house, they're not in a manger. This is sometime after the birth of Jesus. Sorry to mess up your nativity sets again. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, 
and frankincense and myrrh. Herod responds to Christmas with hatred and hostility. The religious leaders respond with indifference and apathy. And how about the wise men? God draws them to Jesus. They see Jesus for who he is, and immediately they fall down and worship him with great joy. The wise men get it right. The only proper response to the king is to humble yourself and bow low. That's the correct response to Christmas. They offer gifts to Christ, sacrificial, costly gifts to him, gifts that are fit for a king as an act of worship. And the wise men are showing us here ultimately what the purpose of Christmas is, what the goal of Christmas is. The end goal of Christmas is not family get-togethers, time off work, and just a general warm sense of love. The end goal of Christmas is the planetary rule of a Jewish carpenter from the little town of Bethlehem. Why? Because this man is more than a carpenter. The religious leader showed Herod Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which rightly predicted the birthplace of the Christ. But if they would have kept on reading, they would have seen that this newborn king existed long before he was placed in a manger. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And if they would have kept on reading Micah, They would have seen that the dominion of this king extended way beyond Israel. Because just a few more verses down, the prophet Micah says, He shall be great to the ends of the earth. The wise men are the first fruits of a kingdom full of subjects, not just from Israel, but from people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation to the ends of the earth. And if they would have read the very next verse The prophet Micah declares the wonderful benefit that the subjects of the king receive. The prophet says that he shall be their peace. And how shall he be their peace? The apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, writing to Jews and Gentiles who were alienated from God and alienated from one another, says to the church, for he himself is our peace through the cross. How different a king Jesus is than the despots of the world. Herod killed rivals to his throne. Jesus died for rivals to his throne. Herod cared about building up his kingdom and becoming greater and greater. Jesus, who is in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing as a servant and went to the cross. And on the cross... He received God's just punishment for the sins of the world so that any sinner in the world, even the worst of sinners like us, if we would believe and trust in Jesus, we would be forever forgiven of our sins because his payment counts for us. We receive eternal life now and the promise of a home in heaven later with the king after we die where there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. This is God's gracious pardon that he offers to the world a world that has rebelled against him. And so if you've come here this morning unbelieving, the best response you can have to Christmas is to believe, to trust in Jesus, to bow down low to the king and give your life to him. Because if you refuse to believe, if you refuse to trust in King Jesus and submit to him, 
If you, if you join with King Herod and dig in your heels and try to eliminate him from your life, or if you just try to ignore him like the religious leaders and just go about your business, you will find that in the end you will not be able to be rid of him. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that the end goal of Christmas, the grand purpose of the incarnation of Christ into the world, is that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where this is all heading. That's where this is going. At the end of the age, King Herod will be raised from the dead. And he will stand face to face with that ancient ruler from Bethlehem. And Herod, along with all those who have refused and rejected King Jesus and tried to ignore him, will be forced to bend the knee. In the same way that a conquered and humiliated foe in the ancient world would be made to bend the knee to the conquering emperor. All of the outlaws and treasonous rebels who rejected the king's gracious pardon will be rejected by Jesus, forever exiled from the kingdom. And that's called hell. But why die when you can live? Why be a fool? Why not instead be wise? The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And 2,000 years after Bethlehem, guess what? Wise men still seek Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How do you respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Christmas, for what it really means. And the invasion of the king into the world. And, ha- and how amazing of a thing it is, you, you would think that when, when a king returns to his kingdom and finds a, a, a bunch of rebels and, and, and a bunch of insurrectionists ruining things and, and rebelling against the laws of the king, you would think that the king would just obliterate everybody. But the reason for Christmas was the sending of the king into the world to win rebels to himself. What an amazing thing that is. What an amazing thing that you have given us a window of opportunity, a a, a time, a period of amnesty, where any who would come could receive forgiveness from the king and bow down low before the king now. And Father, we, we shudder to think that many will refuse that offer of amnesty and they will be forced to bow later before they are duly punished for their treason. Thank you for your love and mercy and kindness. And Father, I do pray for people in this room right now who have been living a life of rebellion against the king and maybe even now for the very first time are realizing that you're here and you're real and they have done you wrong. Father, I pray that you would draw such to yourself, just as you drew pagan wise men to yourself. And that as you draw them, and as they recognize you for who you are, they and their hearts would fall down and worship you and receive your gift of salvation, even now, even this morning. What a wonderful Christmas it would be if someone, for the very first time, encountered you and received your salvation. Thank you, Father, again, for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.